Good morning, guys. Uh, my name's Lewis. Just one of the youth leaders here at church. Uh, today I'll be giving you the Bible reading uh, from Hebrews 10.32 to 11-7. to 7. Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And my righteous one, will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. This is the word of the Lord. morning. And thank you, Lewis. <clears throat> we come to the book of Hebrews. Uh, we'll be looking mostly today at Hebrews 11, uh, verses 1 to 7, which is, of course, a very famous passage uh, in the scriptures. Famous because it talks about faith and because we're preparing to hear a lists of memorable individuals who exercise faith in the living God. Faith is a distinctive of our church, uh, our, our shirts, our paraphernalia, our website has this, this tagline, we are a family of faith following Christ to freedom. It's because faith is what makes us distinctive as a community. Now, whether you consider yourself a strong Christian or not, whether you consider yourself a spiritual person or not, I would argue that you exercise faith every single day. Every relationship that you have in your life requires faith. Now that might seem odd, but what if I say every relationship in your life requires trust? Now you're starting to track with what I'm saying. You cannot be in any sort of meaningful, interactive relationship with somebody 
without trust. It doesn't matter if they are a coworker, a child or a parent, a teacher, a spouse, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. Even when we interact with people in the drive-through, we are entrusting them to follow through on the requests that we have made. And we are offering up our money, our $9 or $12, depending on where you like to go. We're offering that up in advance, expecting that they will give us what we have asked for. Every single relationship requires trust. And that includes your relationship with God. It is because that trust is so important that you see faith talked about throughout the Bible. Faith is a distinctive for us as a community. And when you think about what it means to be a part of a church, I'm not really sure what comes to your mind, but often I don't think of a group of people who are all trusting God together. But that's what we are. If you look around this room before you leave today, I want you to look around the room and not think, oh, these are all a bunch of people who, you know, who, who have a spiritual inclination or, oh, these are a bunch of people who were raised in a church or these are a bunch of people who don't have anything better to do on a Sunday morning. What if we looked at each other and recognized in one another, this is a collective group of people who have, in varying degrees, placed their trust in God. Even, even if someone walks in here for the first time, Walking through those doors is an act of trust. It's saying, God, I'm looking to you. I trust you. I think if we saw one another that way, and we saw that everyone is actually approaching God with this desire to trust him, it might change how we look at each other. As we come to Hebrews chapter 11, I had Lewis read from verse 32 last week because that is such a pinnacle part of the exhortation. If you've been following along with us in the book of Hebrews, you'll have noticed how the author spends a long time explaining the nature of Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross. All through chapter 8, 9, and 10, or the first half of 10, he's explaining what that means for Jesus to offer himself. And the culmination of all of that is to encourage us to draw near to God. So as we looked last week, oops, pardon me. As we looked last week, we saw that, ev- that we were to boldly draw near to God. That was the exhortation. Hey, church, hey, everybody, let's boldly approach God. And it's because faith is the means by which we take steps towards him that faith steps into the focus now for our author. So as we come to chapter 11, uh, I've titled this message, Trusting in the Unseen God. (laughs) Trusting in something you don't see is very difficult. Part of the reason it's so easy to go through the drive-thru and tap and go and then collect our food is because we're waiting no more than two, three minutes maybe. But when you're trusting something that you cannot see for a long time and you're waiting on that promise, the degree of trust that it requires is greater, isn't it? Many of us, when we feel the pain of deteriorating relationships, the reason that it is so painful is because we are left in a position of extended trust. Extended trust without any other supports, without any other visual or verbal confirmation that the trust that we've given to this person is going to pay off. 
And in that extended position of trust, we feel strain. We feel pain. And we begin to speak that pain out. We begin to do things to protect ourselves, to eliminate that pain. So how much more important is it for us to have a robust faith, to have a clear understanding of what faith is if we're going to be in an extended period of trust in a God that we cannot see? This is not to say that there is no reason to believe in God. This is not to equate biblical faith with some sort of blind groping in the darkness, some sort of abandonment of all rationality and reason. That's not what faith is. But nevertheless, faith is distinguished from sight. There's a difference between having the promise and believing the promise. And it's this distinction that much of the book of Hebrews tries to tease out for us. This morning, the big idea that you and I need to take away from our time together is that God rewards our trust in him. God rewards our trust in him. You need to know that he sees your faith. He sees the things that you have held in pledge for him. He sees your disposition of reliance upon his word and his promise. He sees that and he will reward that. And it begs the question, well, what is faith? If faith is so key to our author and faith is key to uh, understanding the scriptures, if, if faith is what we're told is the means by which we are united with God and Christ, you know, we have this new covenant that's not on the basis of, of performing the religious rituals, but it's on the basis of, uh, of a trust, a faith in Christ, it becomes all the more important to understand what it is. Faith is crucial because it is the means by which we are connected to Christ and it's the means by which his righteousness is extended to us and it's the means by which we are enabled and allowed to participate from our, from our side in this new and glorious covenant. So we want to answer the question today, what is faith? What is it? In terms of context, just to, just to recap Last week in Hebrews 19 to 39, God summoned his people to endure with a bold faith that drew near to him. And we see that, we saw last week that we have this access, and so we're, we're, we're invited to use that access. Let's draw near to God. You can really go to him. You can really have a relationship with him. And so that exhortation, let's go to him. Let's hold fast our conviction. Let's Let's not give up meeting together, but let's instead continue to gather and to provoke love amongst one another. And then the reminder came of what it would look like if we didn't do that, if we decided not to draw near to God, but instead drew away from God and persisted in sin. The warning came that, that if we refuse the access, there is really no other access that's going to be provided. There's no other offering for your sins and you and I can only be left with the fearful expectation of a fiery judgment. And so in verse 32 to 39, the conclusion to that section, there was this call to, to, to not be people who fall back from God, but to be people who lean into God. 
And it's that posture of leaning into God, that, that persevering in the promises that the Bible calls faith. As we discuss faith this morning, I want you to be thinking about this as it relates to you, as it relates to the way you go about your life, as it relates to the choices that you make, the conversations that you have, the the dispositions of your heart, the attitudes that you carry into your workplace, into your dinner table, into your quiet, reflective time. And as the focus shifts to the nature of faith and, and, and to what it is, I want you to be to be asking, how and where am I exercising that faith? I'm so heartened to see so many of you here this morning because it says that you are trusting God, even just walking through these doors today, you're trusting God. You're saying, God, I believe that I'm gonna hear, hear from you as we open the word. I believe that your spirit is going to transform me as I come in a posture of worship as I give my gifts and my offerings to you, Lord, as I, as I bow before you in prayer, as we do these things, God, I'm, I'm trusting, I'm trusting that you see that. But as we're gonna see, faith is essential and it's powerful. I'll just say one other note here. A couple of years ago, uh, we did a series in the, in the evening uh, called What is Faith? And, and we looked over five to six messages. One of you is smiling. I, I know there's, there's a young man here. He can tell you his story afterwards. His first time in church, we said, what is faith? And the Lord drew him to himself. So if you wanna, if you wanna hear more on just kind of faith and its nature and its topic, I encourage you to go back. You can, you can go on the website and listen to some of those messages. We're, you're not gonna be satisfied with what we can cover this morning, I'll tell you that. But with that, I want to just present the outline to you today, verses 1 to 7 for chapter 11. Having been implored by the author to retain our confidence, we are now invited to consider faith, specifically in four respects. Faith in its nature, faith in terms of its object, faith in its expression, And finally, faith in its end or its outcome. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open the scriptures this morning, will you speak to us from them? Your words give life and your truth is a light to our feet. Would you lead us in a sure path? In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the first point, the nature of faith, we see this morning that faith is a trust that proves, proves to be the very essence of our realized hope in God. That's a very convoluted definition. <laughs> I'm attempting, I'm attempting in a single sentence to bring together the ideas of 11.1 verse 1. But I've written it deliberately this way for this reason. So just read it again. Faith is, in its nature, a trust that proves to be the very essence of our realized hope in God. Okay? And we're going to see that uh, specifically within that. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have my, I have to look behind me. My eyes are getting bad. <laughs> um, I've, I've left, my, left my tablet. Uh, so I'm trying to squint and read the, read the words on the back of the slide, and my, my eyes just aren't that good anymore. So um, forgive my lack of eye contact there. 
as we, as we look at the nature of faith, um, let's read verse 1 of chapter 11. The author states, now faith, and, and this, was, this was common in that day. At this point in this speech, it's common to give an, it's common to give a simple definition of the, of the subject that's being talked about. And what's, just so you understand what's happening is the author has just said, we need to hold on to faith. And so now in chapter 11, he's going to hold up for us what faith looks like. And he's going to stack a series of examples of faith in order that his listeners might consider the surpassing value of faith so that they don't throw theirs away. And this, this is going to culminate in the example of Christ himself. Oh, someone is coming to my rescue. What a man. Let's give a clap to Chris. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate that. Look at that. Love it. Woo, man, this is like... My faith has turned to sight. Uh, I know what Paul said when he means we look through a glass dimly. Uh, All right, so faith in its nature. Uh, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. If verse 1 is confusing, it's because it's confusing to a lot of translators. Um, And I'm going to do my best. This is going to sound a little bit technical. If you love that stuff, enjoy. If you don't, don't worry, we'll come back. <laughs> All right. 11.1 is a, is a definition of faith and what it is. And specifically, it says, faith is the substance of the things hoped for, the substance, the essence, the reality of the things hoped for. Now, we have a choice to how do we understand that? Do I understand that is, is the reality, is it the reality as I perceive it, which is how your NIV has translated it? The NIV has translated it, faith is confidence. They're leaning into the sense that faith is my perception, my perception of the reality of the things that I hope for. So in this translation, what you're seeing is you're seeing this subjective sense, this faith, how it comes through, how it appears through my eyes. But, That is a fairly unique understanding of what the author means when he uses the word, the substance, the essence, the reality. And I like Gareth Cockrell on this, on his work on this, where he says that faith is the realization of things hoped for. The it, it's, it's the reality, it's, it's the essence, it's an objective thing that God sees, but, but it, is, it is in an outworking way. And this is backed up by the second half of verse uh, 11. Faith is, and Abby says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You, you very well might translate that and proof or evidence of what we do not see. It's a legal term. If you wanted to convict someone of a crime, you needed proof. It's the same word. A charge wouldn't stand against somebody without proof. And so faith is, is the proof, is the proof, the proof or the proving. Now, 
as some of you know, I'm, I'm doing further study, and I had an opportunity this week. I had my, my supervisors were in with me, and we've been talking about the book of Hebrews, and I just put the question to them. I said, Hi, what, do, what should we do with this? And I really liked what Dr. David Starling had to say. He didn't write this down. He just spoke it to me, so that's where it's coming from. And in his words, he said, faith, faith here in this verse, it, it, it has an active, it, it's an active and a, and a dynamic quality. Faith isn't a label. Faith is, is something that is active, that, will, that, that is true and is real now, that will work itself out in the realization of the promise, promises, which is why, as I've written at the top there, faith is a trust that proves to be the very essence of our realized hope in God. In other words, one day, all the promises will become real. All the, they won't just be realized, they will materialize, if that helps you. But right now, faith is the essence of that. The working out of that, it's equivalent to a pledge or a trust that we put in somebody else. The trust that we extend is no less real than the reward that will be given to that trust. The problem is, trust is something that's hard to see with human eyes. You can't go around and say, all right, I'm going to collect some trust today. Here, here's a bag. Put your trust in the bag. Pull it into your pockets, dig it out, drop a few, drop a few bits of trust in there. You, how do you pour it? How, how do you quantify it? How do you measure it? It can be measured and quantified in, in multiple ways. We see its effects, but you can't measure its essence. But that doesn't make it any less real. So faith's nature is it's something that's dynamically expressed over time, which you're going to see through the whole of chapter 11. Another way to understand it is, is faith leverages future hope in the present upon the pledge of God's promise. I am acting now as if I have and as if I've obtained the reality of the promise I'm leveraging my future hope in the present upon the pledge of what God has said. And so I will walk with Christ today because I believe I will walk with him in eternity. I will yield to the Spirit now because I trust that the Spirit will transform me into glory at Christ's return. We could go on and on and on. And so, in, in one sense, faith is a human quality. It's, it's a capacity that every person has. We need to be careful how we talk about faith. So much of Christianity has been written off in society because society has accepted a definition of faith that is something that is non-verifiable, that is, that is ethereal, that is not real, and, and therefore is not relevant. When in actuality, Every human being is engaging in trust, and every human being is engaging in faith. Even a stance of atheism, the denial of the existence of God, even, even the stance that I will, only, I will only heed the material, I will only record and, 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 and live my life under the things by which I say, even that position of, it, of it itself is a stance of trust, is a stance of faith. 
So faith is something that every human has a capacity for, which is why we are all able to make idols in the Bible's terms. This is the nature of faith. But it is also something that is pleasing to God. Moving along, faith's object. Faith and any faith inherently demands an object of trust or reliance. You're not engaging in trust if you are, in, if you are presently occupied with the benefit. I'm not engaging in trust after I pick up my happy meal. The time of trust has ended. I've paid the amount, I've received the food, and now it's just there for me to enjoy. Some of you would don't enjoy that, but that's okay. <laughs> Anytime faith is active, it's, it, it's, it's, it, it is demanding an object. It's, it's demanding a reliance upon something. And so the Bible's stance from beginning to end is that God deserves our unwavering trust. You'll need to put yourself in a posture of reliance upon a host of different people and different circumstances and, and different things in your life. We're going through that right now in our society, aren't we? Which messages do we trust? Which messages don't we trust? And, and we're moving into this phase where we just cancel things. Like there's so much to work through. We just, we're just going to cancel that. We're just going to cancel that because I'm tired of just having to sift through and say, what do I trust? What do I not trust? But God is the one who deserves our unwavering trust. He is to be trusted at all times. And under all circumstances. We had the kids in here this morning and we showed the video, the, the little cartoon video from Saddleback about, about the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. A furnace that's hot enough to, to melt the guards who are outside of it is the same furnace that the three Hebrew men are walking into solely on the basis of their trust that it is more important to fear God than to fear the wrath of kings. So faith's object in this chapter is always God. And God's presented in verses 1 to 7 as one who is holy, one who is sovereign, one who is glorious, and one who is the creator. And so as the one who receives our faith... God will prove its quality. This is what the beginning of the book of Job is all about. A test of the man's faith. It's presented as an argument between the enemies of God and between God himself. And God says, have you considered my servant, Job? And we know Satan instigates all sorts of havoc against Job and against his family and amidst the great suffering and, and, and the loss, even of the relationship, the one relationship he does have left. As his wife turns to him and says, just curse God and die. Get it over with. Job says, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. This picture of complete trust or dependence, God proves its quality we read in 1 Peter that faith is something that is so precious and valuable, it's worth, it's worth more than anything. Verse 6, we're told that 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It's, it's a requirement. Your worship will only extend so far as your faith. And so things like idolatry and self-reliance. Idolatry is the manufacturing of other gods. It's, it's, it's elevating something else into a position that only God should occupy. You say, what's that position? What position does God occupy? Well, God is my creator. He occupies a position of defining who I am, of defining my value and my purpose and my worth. God is in a position of of asking for my obedience and my yielding to his will. He's one that I give myself voluntarily to in an act of worship. So to create an idol is to look to something else to define my value and my identity and my worth. It's to conduct my life according to the demands of that other thing, which ultimately expresses itself in the yielding of my time and my resources and and my service to that false god. And self-reliance is in one way or another idolatry as well. But it's an idolatry that's really in vogue probably because we see so much suffering, probably because we treat each other so horribly. But faith's object is God. There's no point in saying you're a person of faith and trying to be self-reliant. There's no point in being a, a, a Christian who is trying to do it in your own power. Those things are antithetical statements. They they, they cannot be true. You cannot be a Christian who relies fundamentally on your own strength. That doesn't mean there's no no outpouring of of effort or energy in the Christian life. There is. But if it's done out of a a disposition of self-reliance that I have to do it, it contaminates the whole thing. And you're not worshiping anymore. And, and in the worst case, when we engage in that kind of self-reliance, what we're doing is we're, we're actually bringing God down and we're putting him in service of us. And we're saying, God, when I do X, Y, Z, you have to do A, B, C. And so even our own spirituality, even our own morality can take on this, this sick and twisted form of manipulation. Faith demands an object, and God is the one who deserves our unwavering trust. Thirdly, faith's expression. As we said, faith is is trust, trust in God as dynamically expressed in various ways over time. And we're going to look closely now at some of the examples that are put forward. Note verse 2, by faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command. Faith is expressed. You say, what does it look like? If you can't pull faith out of your pocket and drop it in a bag or a bucket, if you can't, if you can't transact faith, what does it look like? Notice in the first of these examples, and, and I'm just going to point out here, these are all pre-flood examples. This is faith before the flood. And it begins with understanding the very nature of creation. To trust in God means to, to accept an understanding of the reality that he inhabits that is beyond your observation. 
There is no way to prove that God created the world by simply his word. You can't jump in a time machine and zoom all the way back to the very beginning and be standing there watching and waiting. It's a logical contradiction. <laughs> Your existence, you, were, you didn't even exist. This is something that totally has to be understood by faith. So faith will express itself in you possessing and, and, and understanding a coherent picture of reality that is beyond measurable observation. World struggles with this. And as much as it's true about creation, I would suggest you also have to accept this in other ways. I have to accept an understanding that my reality in the new covenant is that God will willingly take away my sin. I have to trust those terms. You said Christ died. Yes, he died. We know that. But, but is that really going to be the basis upon which my sins are going to be taken away? What do I have? Now, we get more hints, but I think you see where I'm going. Far, part of faith's expression is you accepting an understanding of the reality that God has created and inhabits even when you cannot measure it. And the second way that faith is expressed in this text is in verse 4. Faith, faith is expressed in a surrender beyond compliance. In, in, in an offering of myself beyond what's just required. There's a volitional yielding, a volitional surrender. This is what Abel does. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was spoken Sorry, by faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. The story comes from Genesis 4. You have these two brothers and, and, and they, they learn from their parents, the first parents, Adam and Eve. And, and they learn about God. They're told about God. They know that he is to be worshipped and, and, and the two bring an offering. And Abel's offering is a better offering. Why? Is it because God likes animals more than he likes fruit and baskets? We're told that it's because Abel brings his offering in faith, in trust. There's a yielding and a surrender. Do you yield to God because you have to or because you want to? Do you tithe? Do you volunteer? Do you, serve? do you do these things because, well, I got to tick the God box? Or do you do it as a response of trust, as a saying, I know that no matter what I give to God, he's going to give me way more than I could ever get, that I could ever give. I'm not going to outgive him. I can't put him in my debt. And so everything that I yield and everything that I offer and everything that I bring, it's, it's simply out of the overflow of my heart that says, why would I want to hold on to this when I could give it to this God who is so much greater and better than I, I am? And how, how mad, majestic he's been in lavishing his grace on me. You see, there's a surrender beyond compliance. 
In verse 5, we see there's a communion beyond just a a simple petition. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. The man is literally translated into heaven. He didn't taste death. His body didn't die. He never breathed his last. He just breathed in heaven. They couldn't find him. He wasn't there. And we're told before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And in the Bible, the phrase to walk with God, is, it, it, it means to live your life with God. In all your coming and all your going, in, 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 in every moment, in the highs and the lows, the mundane and the spectacular, in, in all these different areas, to, to just have this communion with God. Can I tell you, my, my faith has been more impacted by people who delighted to walk with the Lord than any sermon I ever heard. There's a, there's a joy in the communion. There's a joy in, in walking with God and being in fellowship with him beyond just, hey, I need something. I've shared this illustration before. But when you have a young person, you know, it's, it's common, whether it's a student in a classroom or, 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 or your own child or a grandchild or niece or nephew, it's common for a child to say, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, they want something. And as a parent, you quickly become accustomed to children who want something. But can I tell you how delightful it is when, when a child comes up and just sits next to you and just says, just smiles at you. Hey, what are you doing? Can I do it with you? And you say, oh, I thought you'd be off on your screen somewhere. I thought you wanted me to get you some food. Faith expresses itself not not just in the asking, but in in the abiding. In verse 7, we see that faith expresses itself in an obedience beyond reason. Noah's building a boat for a flood that's never even been seen before. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. He heeded the warning of God. So faith, faith expresses itself in, in, in receiving the word of God, even when it's something new and it's something different, and taking that word into his own life and making preparation, making readiness for this. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples about his return, he says, don't be like those servants who say, oh, the master's not coming for a long time, and so I'm just going to neglect all the things that the master said. He said, instead, this faithful servant is the one who knows the master's will and is doing the master's will when the master arrives. There's a readiness, there's an obedience. And continuing in Noah's example, verse 7b By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness in keeping with faith. Traditionally, in Judaism, it's it's seen that that Noah was a, he's called a preacher of righteousness. And you can just imagine this man constructing this vessel 
for a flood event that the world literally had never seen before. And you're going to just imagine the ridicule that he was facing. But his consistent representation of the word of God ends up becoming the means by which they are condemned. Not the means, but it becomes a message of condemnation. Interestingly enough, in the book of Philippians, which we study in Foundations Group, this is what Paul says to the church in Philippi. He says, continue to be united, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, holding together in your faith. I'm paraphrasing here. And he says, this, this will be a sign of judgment to the world. Your lack of fear at their persecution is evidence of your faith, and your faith becomes a message of their judgment. I think you can rightly say that much of the world's grievance against Christianity is because they see our faith and they inherently receive, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, they, they, they perceive in this a judgment upon themselves. So we've seen faith's nature, faith's object, faith's expression, and then finally here, faith's end. God rewards our faith by sharing with us the blessings that Christ has secured. There is a word that is translated various ways in the English throughout this section, and and it actually bookends the beginning and the end of this chapter. And it's the word approved or attested, and really it's, it's another legal term, and it means witnessed. It means seen. And what you need to know, brothers and sisters, is that your faith is seen. I was reminded of God's words to the prophet Samuel when he said, man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. He saw in a young shepherd boy, David, a heart of faith. He didn't see a perfect man, but he saw a man who trusted him and a man who would tremble at his word. And he said, that's my king. The world didn't see that. God sees your faith. Your faith will be testified to. It will be shown. It will be approved. It will be realized as you share in the promises and it will be rewarded. What's the reward? Look with me here. Look at the result of these examples of faith. And I, and I tell you, they linked exactly to us. What was the result of Abel's example? He was accepted as a worshiper of God. This whole book of Hebrews has been about Jesus Christ making us acceptable to become worshipers of God. What about Enoch? Enoch's reward was a resurrection to eternal life, escaping the curse of death. What was Noah's example? What was his reward? He was preserved from holy wrath. When the judgment came, he was spared, he and his household. And in all of this, we are heirs of righteousness. He's telling his readers, his listeners, he's saying, don't throw away your faith. Don't throw away your confidence. Hold on to your faith. It will be rewarded. And starting next week, we're going to move through over the next two weeks just a litany of examples of people whose faith is expressed in a diverse and a a dynamic set of ways. 
But the point is they are all heirs of righteousness. Literally, they inherit righteousness. Some have suggested that the writer in verse 6, when he uses the phrase, God rewards those who seek him, some have suggested that uh, that word rewards is, is a is a made-up word. It's used three times in this letter, but they can't find it elsewhere in the literature of that day. And if you look at the word, it's a, it's, it's a, compound, it's a compound word of, of, of riches and feet. And I saw this as a, just a, a wonderful, beautiful picture. God's called a rewarder because he puts the riches at the feet. He is currently rewarding the faithfulness of Christ by putting all things under his feet. What a picture that God will put at your feet. The blessings of the kingdom of God. It is such a sure promise, Paul would write, that you are already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That you've already been blessed in every way, with every spiritual blessing. We will be accepted as worshipers. We will be resurrected to eternal life. We will be preserved from holy wrath, and we will be heirs of righteousness. As we prepare for Easter, you're going to be asked to meditate and to contemplate upon Jesus and his his life, his death, his resurrection. But here, this text, in calling us to see Jesus, it shows us that seeing Jesus means seeing how God rewards faith, trust, faithfulness. So church, he sees what you're holding. He sees what you're holding in tension for him. He will testify to it. That strain of trust that you are living in right now is working a reward for the things that you hope. Not because you are some, some sort of spiritual superhero that your faith is bang, bang, does something, but because that's how God works. Because he is the one who owns every blessing and he chooses to lavish grace upon those who trust him. He wants your trust. He wants your faithfulness. Will you give it to him? Will you give it to him this week? Will you give it to him today? Will you give it to him when you're tired? Will you give it to him when you're provoked? Will you give it to him when you're lonely? When you're dissatisfied? Will you give it to him when you're ridiculed? Will you give it to him when you're enticed? Will you give him your trust when other people don't understand or disagree with it? God looks at the heart. He sees it. He sees your faith. He will reward your trust in him because he loves you. Because his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, has opened the door into heaven. So let's go to him. Go to him boldly. Let's pray. Father, would you...
Help us to reserve Just reserve our lives for you. Lord, not to, not to somehow try to earn your favor, Lord, but to accept what you've already done. And so God, I pray for, for us all here as we have all come this morning because in one measure or another, we are trusting you. Father, may we celebrate that. May we encourage that in one another. But Lord, may we not let go of Christ. We thank you that he is our portion. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks, Jerry.